Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Turn to Revelation chapter number four. We're moving on to a new chapter of Revelation. Revelation chapter number four this evening. We have four churches down. There are three churches to go. And we are going to look at this church in Sardis this evening. No doubt you're familiar with the verse in Matthew 23, verse number 27. Even if you don't know the address, you know the general subject matter. When Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Beautiful on the outside, but dead on the inside. That's what that verse says, and it talks about the Pharisees. There was a beautiful look on the outside, but there was no life on the inside. And while we would understand this evening that that was the spiritual state of the Pharisees, what if I told you that there was a church that went under the same description? That's a whole different matter, isn't it? A church that would have the description of having beauty, uh, seemingly having vitality on the outside, but yet on the inside was death. On the inside, there was no life. That is the church at Sardis that we're going to look at here in Revelation chapter number four tonight. And in tonight's message, we're going to look at this church and it needs either one of two things, major surgery or an autopsy. There are only two choices. It's either going to need major surgery or an autopsy. And this church gives us some lessons that we can learn and we can understand that even though I believe we're in a church that's much more vibrant than the church of Sardis, we still can learn some things about the deadness that they had and try to avoid the same happening to us here at Liberty. So Revelation chapter number four, we're going to begin reading in verse number one, where it says this after, oh, I'm sorry, verse chapter three. Did I say chapter four? Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter 4, I'm excited about Revelation chapter 4, but that's about a month from now. And unto the church of the, okay, let's try that again. All right. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. As we've done with some of these other churches, as we consider uh, the church of Sardis tonight, we get a little bit of a background of what this church of Sardis was like. Uh, Sardis was a city of ancient wealth, and it was known all over the world as a church, or as a city rather, of financial success. But what you could say about the church of Sardis was this, 
although it had a name, its best days were in the past. Even though it had this great name of wealth and prosperity, time had passed it by. It was a shell of what it had been in the past. William Barclay says this of Sardis, the great characteristic of Sardis was that even on pagan lips, Sardis was a name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose living, notoriously pleasure and luxury loving, and Sardis was a city of decadence. It's pretty bad when the people in the Roman Empire, the pagan people in the Roman Empire say, wow, Sardis, that's a place where people live loose. <laughs> that's a place where people uh, have decadence that we can't even accept. And it was a place that was in many ways, can we put it this way, overcompensating for the fact that they weren't what they thought they were. And so they're projecting that they were something. They were projecting as a city that they had opulence, that they had all of the things. And uh, even in the Roman Empire, they were looked at with disdain and contempt. Uh, how could you explain Sardis in a way that would explain this kind of decadence? Well, twice in history, Sardis was conquered despite being situated on a cliff in such a way that it was almost impenetrable. So why was it conquered? Uh, it was because of their overconfidence that they had left their city relatively unguarded. They just thought, well, who's going to mess with us? We're Sardis. Who's going to bother us? We have this natural fortress that's around us. We don't even need really much defenses here. And their overconfidence caused them to twice over be conquered, once by the Greeks and once by the Romans. In summary, George Eldon Ladd defined the Sardis church as a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with the externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. Now, does that sound like the modern church in a lot of ways today? And of course, I use the term church loosely or, or corporately as I say so, but a, a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with the externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. It was in this city that the church of Sardis was established. Now remember, out of these people came the church. Out of this city came the members of the church of Sardis. The problem was too much of the city of Sardis no doubt got into the church of Sardis. That's a problem, isn't it? Listen, it's just like the vessel, the boat. Uh, the boat is all right in the water. It's just a problem when the water's in the boat. You don't have to know much about sailing, Jim, uh, like you do. Uh, and uh, well, were you in the Navy? But, uh, uh, but I, I, I know this, the water does not belong inside of the vessel. And the church is to be part of the world in the sense that how are we gonna minister to the world if we're not out there in the world talking to people in the world? But at the same time, when we allow the world to come into the church body, it becomes a completely different thing. And we see something of that nature here in Sardis. Uh, the church of Sardis had too much influence from the city of Sardis itself. And there's a progression that I feel like that takes place over the last three churches that we've looked at. You'll remember Pergamos was a church contaminated. And then last week we saw Thyatira was a church compromised. So that's a progression, of course, in a downward way. Uh, first was compromised, or rather contaminated. Thyatira compromised. Sardis, from what we just read, is corpse-like. Sardis, it says, looks like it's alive, but when you get close and look it in the eyes, there's no life there. It's dead. 
And that's what we see here. And so starting as we look at this letter that was written to the church of Sardis, uh, again, by Jesus Christ, not by John, uh, John just the penman, but Jesus Christ, the author of this letter to the pastor and the church at Sardis, Jesus introduces himself different ways to every church, doesn't he? And he illuminates a different part of his character to that church because it's relevant to some of the difficulties or even some of the good things that they're doing. And so here he calls himself in verse number one, uh, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He that hath the seven spirits of God. We're not going to spend too long on this, but you'll remember we looked at this in chapter number one. Uh, we'll see it again in chapter number four. The idea of the number seven, meaning completion, uh, the complete nature of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that is lacking within the Holy Spirit and that there is this unity that is between the Spirit and the Son of God. There is no separation between them. There is never any time where there might be some friction between the two of them like we could find within our church or like we could find anytime you put two people together. You're not going to find that. It says that the uh, this saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, Jesus Christ who has the seven spirits of God. But Jesus Christ also has the seven stars. Remember those seven stars represent seven churches. Revelation 1.20 tells us that the stars are the churches. And so who is the ultimate leader? And I feel like we're reminding ourselves of this again, but it's because several of these things are said over and over again, kind of like we need to keep learning them or we need to keep remembering them. Who is the ultimate leader of the church? Well, it's God. Uh, who is the one that holds a church in the hand? It's God. Listen, when man takes over the church, it's a problem. We'll get to Laodicea and see that's exactly what happens where it's not the church of God at Sardis, it's the church of the Laodiceans because they're the ones that are taking ownership uh, now of the church. And if we have the ownership of Liberty Baptist Church, we don't do well because when we take the ownership out of God and we take the church of God and make it the church of man, that's bad news. Anytime you find that is the case. And so here's Jesus Christ introducing himself as he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so with that being said, we have our three categories that we look at with every one of these letters. And we start here tonight at its commendation. Number one, its commendation. What did Sardis do good? Here's the problem. Not much. Now there's some good that is said, but you've got to look. And what's interesting about this church is it represents a change from the previous four churches we looked at in chapter number two. In those letters, Jesus Christ gave the good news first and then gave the bad news. Do you notice how Jesus leads here in this letter to Sardis? He starts right out, can we put it this way, with a gut punch. I mean, how would you like to get a, think about this. You open your mailbox and you get a letter from Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a second. I mean, you have opened your mailbox and inside is a letter addressed to you from none other than Jesus Christ. I would imagine that if that was the case for me, I would be excited. My hands would be shaking trying to open it, uh, the letter opener. I'd have to be careful using it uh, because I'm trying to open it. It's from Jesus Christ. And I read it and my eyes focus on the first line and it says this, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Okay, that's not good at all. That's not the compliment we're looking for, the commendation. Uh, rather, this is reversed, which tells us because this order is reversed, and we are getting to the commendation in a second, but because this order is reversed, there are some very acute problems here. 
and I don't mean cute like, oh, isn't that cute? You know, acute meaning like, it's now. This needs to get fixed. If it doesn't get fixed, this is a major problem that's here. This church had lost its way in several ways, but yet, looking at the commendation, not everybody had lost their way. Did you see that in verse number four? It says, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And verse number two alludes to that as well when it says to strengthen the things which remain. If there are some good things that remain, that means there are some good things. There are some names uh, that have not, whatever the sin of Sardis is, and we're not really given specifically what it is like some of the others, whether it was Jezebel or the Nicolaitans or, or whatnot. We're not really given that in the same way here. All we know is this, they look alive, but they're dead. That's what we know. Now we can conjure up some guesses. We're not going to, but we certainly could uh, here tonight. But here's what I know when I look at the commendation section of this tonight. It says this, that thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is important. It says they walk in white, for they are worthy. That white there, that connotation, really, whenever we see it in the Word of God, speaks of holiness the white, the unspotted white garments. You are given a white garment, if you will, the day you get saved. That you can't wash your garment white as snow, that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us white as snow. You say, well, pastor, how can you know that? Well, verse number five, we don't have to go very far. It says, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Well, who are the overcomers? Remember, the ones who are saved by Jesus Christ. And so that white garment that is given to us uh, is uh, that garment of holiness. And when it says to walk worthy, that doesn't mean that we have to work to achieve worth in the eyes of God. And I think sometimes we get ourselves in trouble with this. And we kind of talked about this a little bit on Sunday morning that I have to do and do and do and do to be worthy of the love of God. Listen, in essence, we're never worthy of the love of God. It's given to us out of his grace uh, that we receive that. When it says that we're to walk worthy, rather, I believe it means this, we're to present ourselves to him in a worthy manner, in a sense that we want to keep that garment white with his help, with his sustaining power, because we want to offer ourselves back pure to him as that living sacrifice. You say, living sacrifice. Well, yeah, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. What? Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What about Ephesians 4, 1? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And that phrase, walk worthy, is found three times in the New Testament. We're to walk worthy. Not that we're to walk so that we can ever become worthy, but that God has made us worthy uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ by us repenting of our sins and calling upon Him to save us. And that name that He has given us, we need to walk worthy of that name. I belong to the family of God, and I want to act like it. I want to show myself as, a, as someone who is associating uh, with that. I want to dress myself in that white garment in a way that says, I'm doing this for him, and I'm associating with him. 
I mentioned some of you that had a chance to walk in a parade on, on Monday uh, at uh, the Easton, the Memorial Day Parade, and it was it was a neat thing. There were some interesting parts that I'll use for sermon illustrations another time, uh, but in general, it was, it was certainly uh, a neat thing to be able to do. Uh, but, you know, I was asking, what am I supposed to wear? What should I wear? And I was thinking maybe wear a polo shirt or something like that. It's going to be uh, warm uh, out there. And the man who was in charge says, well, I'm going to wear a suit. And he says, what do you wear when you preach at your church? I said, well, I wear a suit. And he goes, well, you can wear a polo shirt or a button down if you want. I said, no, I'm going to wear a suit. Well, why did I do that? Because I'm a hard-nosed fundamentalist? Well, that's what someone called me on Monday, but that has nothing to do with it. Uh, no, uh, I wore that uh, because... It really wasn't about me. It was about the fact that I was there commemorating those who gave a sacrifice. And I was dressing in such a way. You know why I didn't wear my cutoffs and my flip-flops uh, and uh, my ba- I don't know, do I have any of those? Uh, but uh, imagine if I did. You know why? Because it wouldn't be worthy of the sacrifice they made. It would make a mockery of the sacrifice which they have made. And so you know why I walk in a certain way, why God wants us to walk in a certain way, and why I should have that desire to? Because he's done so much for me. You know what, I want to reflect the greatness of who he is, and I want to do it in a way that I walk worthy. Not that I'm trying to gain worthiness by doing so, but because of what he has done for my life. I want to present myself back to him. Offering myself in purity, in worth to God is a reflection about how I feel about his greatness. And the good news is there were some that were still doing that within the church. The problem is, and we don't get to spend very long on the commendation because number two is the complaint. And the complaint is short, but it's succinct. The irony is the complaint is shorter than the commendation. The commendation is all of verse 4 and a tiny part of verse 2. The complaint, I would argue, is only one half of verse 1. Maybe even less than half if you counted the words. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. How many times have we heard that? It's a theme that keeps coming up over and over again, isn't it? I know thy works. And what's the verdict of Jesus Christ knowing their works? Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Could that be one of the most sorrowful things that could ever be said about a church? You have a name, but you're dead. A pharisaical ministry in the sense that we don't know that they necessarily were acting as the Pharisees acted, but the result from the verse that I read from you from Matthew 23 is the same. They were whited sepulchers. On the outside, they looked like everything was good and right and the way that it should, but on the inside, there was nothing there. There was no life. Uh, What was so awful about Jesus Christ saying this about them was this was the reputation their city had. That's the irony of it. Their reputation in Sardis, remember, at one point they were a prosperous city, but now they weren't as prosperous of a city. They weren't as found to be as noble of a city as they were before, but they were trying to project themselves to be something they no longer were. We all, you know, we expect that of the world, but here's a church that's doing it. And Jesus says this, do you realize your reputation is the same as your city? There ought to be a difference between our church and the town and city that we're a part of. There better be some difference between us 
and the world because here they have the exact same reputation. Uh, you're, you're, you're posing to be one thing, but there's nothing there. And your church is posing to be one thing and there's nothing there. We must also be careful that we don't live off the past reputation of our church or of Christianity in general. You say, well, pastor, well, we've only been here 10 years. Well, compared to some churches in New England, uh, we're a baby because there's some churches that are still around that have been here hundreds of years, believe it or not. There's some, the First Baptist Church of Boston was uh, built, I believe, in the 1660s. Uh, but, you know, you can't go back by just what we used to be. Do you know, just as we have to receive the mercies of God anew every day, we must serve him anew every day. And it can't just be, well, you know, we did a lot of good things for the Lord a few years ago. Well, no, it's, let's serve him again today. Well, why? Because he's worthy. And so we want to continue to serve him, not because, well, I, I got to keep trying to please him. Eventually, it's like the dad you can't please. You know, you keep trying and trying and trying, and maybe someday I'm going to please him. No, he is well pleased, uh, but he, we want to walk in a way that shows the worth that he has and to show the world of the worth he is. But we don't want to just go slide by the reputation of the past. You ever been to a restaurant that used to be really good, but maybe it's been five, ten years since you've been there, and you get there and you look around and say, is this even the same place? When I was a teenager, the place to eat in Tampa was called the Colonnade. It was right on Bayshore Boulevard. It had a beautiful view of Tampa Bay, and it was the place to eat. And, of course, you know, Chucky and Bethany might be thinking, well, where is the colonnade? Well, uh, it's a parking lot now. Actually, I think it's a high-rise tower, to be exact. Uh, you know why? Uh, because after 80 years, uh, they started to just say, you know what? We've got a pretty good reputation. And I remember the last couple times I went to the colonnade. One time when Diane and I didn't have a lot of money, uh, we went over to the colonnade because I was going to treat her to a great uh, night out. And I realized if we wanted a great night out, we probably shouldn't have gone to the colonnade <laughs> because their heyday was at least 10 years before and their prices were still in current day. And it wasn't great. You know what happened? They closed. They closed. You know, that's okay with a restaurant because restaurants come and go. But when we talk about churches, Listen, well, well, we've got to be cutting edge, Pastor. We've got to be out there with the times. No, no, we need to be something far more timeless as a church because the Word of God itself is timeless, and we're not looking to match ourselves with the culture, and we're not looking to match ourselves uh, with, with what pop Christianity says. No, no, what are we to do? Uh, we just need to get to where the book tells us to be, and we be there and let the chips fall where they may uh, and continue to do that. Uh, but no, that's not what they did. Uh, they were going by the name that they had, uh, but they were dead on the inside. Uh, in essence, they were more of a corpse than a church. One commentator put it this way, this indicates the fact that they were dead. It indicates no struggle, no fight, no persecution. It wasn't that the church of Sardis was losing the battle. A dead body has lost the battle and the fight seems to be over. I would put it to you this way. It does seem by reading this that there was a group of people within that church that were unregenerate. There was very likely a group of people within that church that did not even know Jesus Christ, their Savior. And that certainly can be the case at times. And we can ask for people's professions, and I can even have people tell me their professions before they join. But you know as well as I do that everyone's heart is just between them and the Lord as far as salvation. And there are times that maybe that's the case. And I believe it seems like there were some people that were spiritually dead that they had never received 
that new life in Jesus Christ. It's very likely that that was the case here. But I would also suggest to you, it seems that there are some Christians who were branches who detached themselves from the vine. That there were those who hadn't lost their eternal life, but they had lost the vitality that they should have as victorious Christians here in this life. No, no, they didn't lose their eternal life. We find the scripture makes it quite clear that eternal life is, well, how do I put it? Eternal. But they had lost the vitality of the victorious Christian life because the vine and the branches were apart when they were supposed to be together. So what is the result of this dead church? Well, the result of a dead church is this. When a church is dead, there's no works. You know why? Because something dead doesn't produce anything. Something that's dead cannot produce works because it is dead. I mean, you say, wow, that, that's really groundbreaking. No, no, I know it's not, but when you look at a church that's dead, it can't produce anything. Well, if we were to do an autopsy of a church, this is a church that needed major surgery. But if we were to say, well, there's an autopsy that's needed here, what would we ask ourselves? What would be some of the questions we as a spiritual medical examiner would ask ourselves about this church? Maybe some of the complaints that could be leveled against them to make sure that we don't have the same things leveled against us. Because there's some things that the Bible talks about that can bring deadness into the Christian life if we're not careful. How about this? Maybe amongst the church of Sardis, maybe there was no charity among the brethren. Charity among the brethren. You say, well, why, why would that have to do with life? Well, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. I'm going to read that again. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. How will people know that we're believers? Jesus said, you'll love one another. You'll love one another. Listen, they all fight. And by they, I mean everybody outside those walls. Everyone's ready to fight outside of those walls. I was about to turn out of my, our apartment complex today, and there's a man that was in front of me, and uh, he decided he was going the wrong way. I'm right behind him, and so what did he do? He decided to reverse. So I did what any red-blooded Bostonian would do. I said, what you do? No, never mind. I said, <laughs> I honked the horn. No, I wasn't like laying on, but I thought he didn't know I was back there. Maybe the guy's just in a hurry, didn't realize someone was behind him. He backs up. He backs up, backs around me, pulls alongside of me. My window's down, not because I'm looking for a fight, but because it's like 80 degrees outside. Like I live in Massachusetts now. It's hot out there. I don't live in Florida anymore. It's hot. My windows are down. And he starts just screaming and cussing at me and saying all these things because I had the audacity to honk my horn at him. Uh, see, uh, no, I hit the gas is what I did because I didn't want to be anywhere near this situation uh, 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 at all. Uh, that would have been a great, uh, great comeback, though, uh, no doubt. Um, here's what I'm saying. There are people out there that are looking for a fight. You know them. If their uh, coffee doesn't come from Duncan exactly the way they want it, it's time to throw down. If they don't get exactly what they expect at work, the way they expect it, it's time to fight. 
Okay, that's out there. Here's where that shouldn't happen. Here. You know why? Because a church that has that type of confrontational attitude is a church that, according to Jesus Christ and what we see here in 1 John 3, 14, that has a name that thou livest but is dead. I'm not the one that said that. That's what the book says. I link that to 1 John 3, 14, and, and it seems to me that could be a cause in an autopsy of what could cause some problems in a church that could bring deadness within. What about this? Maybe we ask as spiritual medical examiners to the church at Sardis, we have to ask ourselves this question. Was there a desire to see other people pass from death unto life? Was there a desire for them to see other people pass from death to life? I mean, we, we just saw that in 1 John 3, 14, that we pass from death unto life. But it's not just good enough for us to get it and say, well, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. Do we have a desire to see other people get saved? And I feel like I need to keep saying this. It's great that we have visitors. We had more visitors on Sunday night, came from out of town, rescued us just in time to keep the street going uh, for 14, 15 weeks of visitors in a row. You know what? I would trade all of that in if we knew that one person got saved. And I think sometimes we need to make sure that we remember this. Now, those people are coming and one of them or many of them may get saved. We don't know. But this is what I'm saying is the end goal is not, hey, let's get a crowd. The end goal is, hey, let's get a crowd to go with us to heaven so that we can be around the throne of God for all eternity. And, and of course we want them to join and be a part and to grow and to be discipled. That's also part of the Great Commission. Not just to see them saved, but then baptized, added unto the church and teaching them to win others also. That's the Great Commission. But if we are a church that doesn't have the desire to see other people come to know Jesus Christ their Savior, uh, that deadness ends up on our account. Why? Well, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A church growth um, expert, uh, he's from Lifeway Research. His name's Tom Rayner. He said this, when a church ceases to have a heart and ministry for its community, it is on the path towards death. Whenever local churches are mentioned in the New Testament, they are always exhorted to be other-centered. Other-centered. Meaning this, it's not just about what can we do for ourselves, it's how can we reach the community. Well, how, how can we reach people? You, you know why I marched in a parade? What do you think? Because I love a parade. You know, that's, hey, that'd be a great song. Uh, no, that's not why I marched in a parade. You know why? There were people I got to talk to about the gospel and give tracts to that I wouldn't have got to. Some of them might be coming, Lord willing, uh, to the anniversary. That's why. To be able to name the name of Christ to all those people who are there. That, that's, that's why I went. Uh, because we want to desire to see people saved. And, and you know, why, why are we buying popcorn to, to hand out to people? Because it's... I'm not sick of this corny. Uh, but um, <laughs> were you in the Navy? Um, but uh, it, it, the reason why is because it's just an excuse to talk to people about the gospel. That's what it is. Because that's what it's all about. And when we lose that, we miss who we are. Spiritual, I, I got to keep moving. A spiritual medical examiner could do an autopsy here and, and ask this. Was there a desire for them to do good works? Because Galatians 6.10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. When we stop taking that opportunity, what happens? Well, we start to miss what God has for us. What about this? Was there a desire to be spiritually minded? To be spiritually minded, not to be worldly minded, not to think as the world tells us to think, not to be pressed into the mold of what the world tells us. Romans 8.6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
you know why you need to be more in the word and less into what's going on in some of these other realms that people are trying to tell you? Entertainment, Hollywood, whatever it is. Do you know why? Because to be carnally minded is death. You know what most of the time the, the, world, the world is talking about? Uh, carnally minded stuff. That's why we need more about Jesus, not less. And so maybe these are some things that were happening to this church that was here. And so its uh, complaint was very short, but wow, it hurts. It was a church that had a name that thou livest and was dead. Let that never, ever, by God's grace, be said of us here at Liberty Baptist Church. And then finally, quickly, we also see its charge. There were some things that are said here, and several of them have been repeated to other churches as well. And this is found in, church, in uh, verses number two and three. What does he say? Uh, be watchful. It reminds me that, that to be sober and to be vigilant. Being sober and vigilant in 1 Peter 5.8 is something we're all supposed to do. But if you go to 1 Timothy 3, chapter 2, it's also something that the pastor is supposed to be. There are some of the requirements of a bishop to be sober and to be vigilant, that we are to be watchful uh, for these things. We must take care and heed of ourselves and of the church body to strengthen the things that remain. Reinforcement is necessary that you have to reinforce the things uh, that are crumbling. Listen, we just saw an apartment building in Iowa uh, that partially toppled. It was a year or two ago we saw in Miami uh, that there was an apartment building, a high rise that did the exact same thing. Did you know the one in Miami specifically, they've done studies of it afterwards and said, yeah, there were signs that it was eroding, but nobody really did anything. You know all they needed to do? Strengthen the things that remained and the structure would still stand. What do we do? We must strengthen the things uh, uh, that remain uh, as well. And again, in Sardis's credit, that means there were some good things that were still around that just needed to be strengthened. Uh, to remember, uh, it says, to uh, remember, therefore, how thou hast uh, received and heard. You know, on Sunday, uh, we've, we've heard this before that we need to remember. On Sunday, Lord willing, through the message, we're going to try to take some time to remember 10 years of ministry here in Easton. And it's not just so we can stretch the hand and pat it on the back, but we have to remember where we've been so that spiritually we make sure that we go the same direction and better over the next 10 years than we have. I'm not saying we've done it all right in the last 10 years. In fact, the only I, I, would, I would live this 10 years over again if I could. The only thing I would want to do is just do it better for the Lord this time than I did the last time. But what do we do? We, we want to remember. We need to remember. It's important to hold fast. We've heard this just in the last uh, letter to Thyatira. Hold fast. Don't just remember these things, but hold on to it once you have. And then what's the answer when you're going the wrong way? Repent. Repent. Turn away from the old ways and don't go back. Turn quickly to Romans chapter 8. We're almost done, but I want us to read this. Romans chapter 8. What's the cure for a dying church? I think it's found here in Romans chapter 8, verse number 9, and the verses that follow. What is the cure for a dying church? I would put it to you this way. A dying church just needs to die. A dying church just needs to die. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I mean, you're saying Sardis just deserved to die because they had done so. I mean, what a... You talk about pharisaical legalism. Listen to you to say church, Sardis deserved to die. What about churches that are, that are on the brink? I mean, shouldn't, don't, we, don't we give missions money to help save those kind of churches and help them grow and thrive again? A church that's dying just needs to die? Well, the question is, 
die to whom? Die to whom? Because Romans gives us the answer to that. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now, once we're saved, we're in the spirit. We're not to live after the flesh. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If someone says in this New Testament era that they do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, they're not saved because the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. You can go to many different places and look at that. We've just talked about this in Sunday school extensively. Verse 10, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. You have a new life now in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, by the way, that's powerful. That's powerful. The spirit that rose Jesus up from the dead is in you. I mean, we could just read that and just kind of, you want to talk about worship. I mean, that power, resurrection power, lives inside of me. And, and we have trouble kicking the habit. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking like the nun's habit. I'm talking about the habits that we have. And I'm, sinful habits. That lives inside of us. But the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, uh, uh, we are debtors not to live to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through ye through the Spirit uh, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Do you get that at the end of verse number 13? Mortify the deeds of the body. What does that mean? That means the flesh needs to die. You know what the solution for Sardis is that was dying? They needed to die they need to die to self. The solution for the church at Sardis is really the solution for us as well. When the things that used to be strong and vital are dying, it just needs to die. But I mean, die to self. Maybe you even look at your own Christian life and you say, you know what, there, maybe in my own life, you know, I have a name I know what people think about me in the church or I know what people think about me at work and they must think, uh, you know, I read the Bible a lot and they think that I'm, you know, I really have a close walk with the Lord, but maybe that's not the case and you know it and the Lord knows it and that's it. Here's the thing. You feel like maybe even spiritually you're dying a little bit, N not losing your eternal life, but that you're losing the vitality of the Christian life that you should have. My solution to you when you feel like you're dying, you just go ahead and die. Say, Pastor, this is why I come to Liberty Baptist Church for that kind of encouragement. No, it, it's we need to die to self. When we die to self, through the power of the Holy Spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ, what happens? We can have victory in our life. And then the name that we are is who we are. And then who gets the glory? Well, me, because I did. <laughs> when it was you, you were dying. But when you died to self through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have new life again. Not new eternal life, but new vitality, new joy, new energy in your spirit. And who's the one that did it? All the glory goes to him because he is the one that allowed it. He is the one that happened. A church that had a name that was nothing. There's only one, two choices, autopsy or major surgery. For us tonight, in our spiritual life, if there's some things that are dead that need to be vital, uh, revitalized again, major surgery is, well, the end of the charge. Repent.
repent, and God will help you to be able to strengthen the things which remain. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.